So, so we're preaching. I'm preaching this morning on Romans 12. I, I, I think it just says Romans 12 in the liturgy, but it's just two verses, one and two. Uh, before you think this is going to be a short sermon, uh, David Martin Lord Jones, I think, preached ten sermons just on these two verses. So, um, but uh, I think I think we'll just do about thirty minutes today. That's about it. Uh, but there's what that says though. There's just so much wealth and depth and riches in this passage in Romans 12. Um, it's a joy to be in it, and I regret not having more time in it this week, uh, honestly. So I'd like to read the passage, we'll pray, and then we'll get into it. This is from the Apostle Paul. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Father, yes, there is much here. Lord, this is a challenging passage. Anytime I think about sacrifice, and, and it's difficult, it's a challenge, and I'm sure it is for many of my brothers and sisters here. But Lord, we know that you are worth the challenge, far above and beyond what we can imagine. But we need eyes to see. We need hearts that are soft and moldable, and we pray that you would do that through your word Use me this morning, but most of all, let your spirit reign upon all of us, that we may all be transformed by the renewing of our mind. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, is the author of this passage, as, as most of you know, and um, it's probably one of the most famous books in the Bible and probably one of the most widely preached passages uh, in in Christendom, I would imagine it's uh, it's it's probably up there. And we're in chapter twelve in a sixteen chapter book, so a lot has happened up until now. And Paul is giving you 11, 11 chapters that he wrote to the church in Rome. It could be divided up into three sections. I'm just going to give you a quick overview here, uh, because in the very beginning, in chapter one. You can see the, the theme of the whole book is in verses 16 and 17. And it's this. Paul says this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And this is the case that Paul is making throughout the book. This is the theme of the book of Romans. So chapters 1 through 8, we pretty much see Paul giving the theme. He talks about man's sin and depravity. He talks about God's plan. He talks about Christ's work. And then chapter 9 through 11, we see a little more difficult reading. We have passages in chapter 9 through 11 like, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, quoted out of Malachi. We see this in, in, in this passage also. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. That's another hard one to, 
to wrap your head around. When you think of a merciful God, when you think about a God who is loving, and these are challenging verses to read. But the truth is, chapters 9 through 11, the theme of those chapters is mercy. Mercy of God. Mercy in various words. They're used throughout those chapters, but they're used more than ever in chapters 9, 10, and 11. The theme of mercy is prevalent, and God is making his case that our God is mysterious, yes, because he ends chapter 11 saying, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. He's saying, I don't get it all, but he is a good God, even when I don't understand And Paul says this also in chapter 11, For God has consigned all to disobedience. Why? That he may have mercy on all. He is leading up now to what Paul does in his letters so well. He divides up usually the first part with theology, knowing God, and the second part with how do we respond? What do we do? How does this apply to our lives? It's our exhortation. And this is what we have in chapter 12, as he sets the pace, as he sets the theme for the next three chapters, or four chapters, I'm sorry, 12, 13, 14, and 15. Some examples of this, is he does this in Colossians. He gives you two chapters of theology, and then he starts chapter 3 with this. If then, or since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of the earth. He gives an application of all the theology he just laid out. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, he gives three chapters of theology and knowing God in Ephesians. First three chapters, and then the second three chapters, he starts off chapter 4 with this. I, therefore, prisoner of the Lord, urge you, same word he uses in chapter 12, urge you or appeal to you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility, gentleness, and patience. Now he gives, this is how you should respond as a result of who God is. And this is what he's doing here in chapter 12 of Romans. No different. He's setting, he's setting the pace for what's to come now. So now the theme here that we see in verses 1 and 2 really revolves around worship. At the end he says, or he says, uh, verse 2, do not be conformed to this word, I'm sorry, verse 1, that you may be wholly acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's talking about worship. What kind of image do you get when you think about worship? Looking at this passage, what does worship look like in the way Paul has presented it here? Think about that for a minute. Now compare that to the image of worship that we see typically in contemporary Christianity or in our culture. Let's just say our culture. I like what Pastor Dick Lucas says, a British pastor and theologian. He says, worship for most Christians seems to be built on the necessity... Worship for most Christians seems to be on the, built on the necessity of a building, a priest, and a ritual. Or for us, we could say a building, a pastor, and a liturgy. 
Think about the context in which we think of worship. Think about the priority we place on those three things in determining the quality of our worship. When we think about worship, most of us think about what we're doing right now. When we talk to, when we meet somebody new and we find out they're a believer in Christ, we might say, where do you worship? That's been asked me many times. Where do you worship? And I tell them, grace and peace. And everybody, we all know what that means, right? But Paul is basing his exhortations on the mercy, I'm sorry, but the foundation on which he places this He has a bigger picture of worship than what our culture sees worship to be. What this passage tells us is that the true, spiritual, reasonable worship actually happens outside these walls. We think of worship as what we do in here, but when we're away from the outside world, that's what Paul is talking about is true worship. And by the way, don't get me wrong. What we're doing here is worship. But I'm trying to put it in context of what our contemporary culture professes or believes or or lives, I should say. And we we have an error or a possibility of falling into that ourselves. Paul's telling us that the true worship is happening in our very, in our everyday life. It's the new, it's a new transformed way of life. He's telling us to be nonconformist, to not just fall into the belief that worship happens only here. Think about this too. Worship inside this building is happening when we're all gathered together, isolated from the world. That's not what he's calling us to do. That's not worship in the sense of Romans 12. He's calling us to make it more than this, to make it part of everyday life, to make it our entire life. What he's telling us to do is that true worship requires knowing God, it requires daily sacrifice, and it requires a transformed heart. So knowing God... Notice these three exhortations that Paul gives. As he, as he opens the chapter, he says that he, he calls us to present our bodies as living sacrifices. He calls us to not be conformed to this world, and he calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But the foundation on which he places those commands or those exhortations is on the mercies of God. He doesn't start off ever with the commands. Notice in Ephesians, the very first thing he says, he doesn't say, greetings Ephesians, I want you to walk this way in the Lord. The very first things he says is, our blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us from the foundation of the world, be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to, to himself for the glory of God. He, he goes off on a run-on sentence telling what God has done for the Ephesians. And that's what he's doing here. He spent 11 chapters telling his brothers and sisters in Rome what God has done. It's when he says, based on the mercies or through the mercies of God, he's saying, based on all of the mercies of God, the kindness that leads us to repentance, 
the grace in which we stand in chapter 5, the forgiveness of sins that he gives to us, the baptism that we have in Christ. What we know is the great exchange, we're exchanging Christ's righteousness for our sin. All of those are God's mercies. And he's saying because of what he has done for us, because of all of these great things he has done for us, now, brothers and sisters, and he calls them brothers. He does, he's talking to them as a fellow believer, as a fellow struggler with sin, as a fellow brother to the church. He's saying, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, present yourselves a living sacrifice. Think about this. Every human relationship starts off with getting to know one another before any kind of submission happens. I mean, with a family, we have a child who first gets to know us before we are telling them anything to do. That's just the nature of how, how birth happens and how we raise children. They just get to know us and love us. When Christy and I started dating, the first thing we did, we went out. We didn't expect anything of each other. We got to know each other. And when we got to know each other and trust each other, there was a love, there was a mutual respect and a mutual submission to one another. Now she can ask me to go to the grocery store. Now she can ask me to get her a cup of coffee or I can ask her to do something. And we love each other. And we know each other. And we're able to do that because of what we have, how we've cared for one another. So based on those mercies, what's Paul telling us to do? He's telling us to present our bodies, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. Tim Tim Keller calls this a living killing. A living killing, a daily dying to ourselves for the sake of Christ. But what might stand out to some of Paul's readers is it's not just a spiritual giving, but he's saying to give your bodies. That's kind of interesting. John Stott points out, we talk about giving our hearts to Jesus. When we're saved, we talk about giving our hearts to Jesus. We we talk about it in more of a spiritual sense. But here's the Apostle Paul telling his brothers and sisters, after talking about the sin that he struggles with in chapter 7, talking about how all have fallen and fall short from the glory, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He's saying, you, you who have sinned and have continued to struggle with sin, offer those bodies to the Lord. What seems out of place here? Well, if we think about Old, Old Testament sacrifice, the animals that were sacrificed in the Old Testament were supposed to be without blemish. They were supposed to be pure. Here Paul is telling us to present our sinful flesh, our struggling, weak flesh. He's telling us to present to God as a living sacrifice. Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, is telling us to present our bodies to God as living sacrifices for his glory. Well, how do we do this? Paul says in Romans 6, 13, he says, 
Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Again, he reminds them, he reminds us of the work that God has done. Present yourselves as ones who have been brought from death to life. You were dead, and now you're alive because of Christ. So therefore, present yourselves as sacrifices to the Lord. That also means to trust his plan. Part of it is presenting ourselves, disciplining ourselves so that we are not falling into sin, disciplining ourselves that we would put to death those things that cause us to sin and continually work through this process of what we call sanctification, a lifelong process that continues and continues. But it's it's a continuation with the trust that God is doing a work in us. But it's also a daily killing of our hopes in ourselves, hopes in our abilities. It's giving ourselves to God's plan, even when it seems like it doesn't make sense, even when it angers us, even when it causes us to despair. This daily killing, this daily sacrifice is saying, Lord, I give myself to you. Right now, I don't know what to do, but I'm going to trust you. It's a daily giving of yourself. You feel challenged by this? Please know I'm speaking to you as a struggling brother. I love that Paul addresses them as brothers. And I would address you the same way a fellow struggler in the faith, one who knows my failings all too well, and one who knows how many times I have failed in offering myself to the Lord this daily sacrifice. But yet we have every day to do it. And every day his, his mercies are new every morning. Praise God for that. This offering of oneself to the Lord will bring as the verse continues, as the passage continues, a transformation. The work of transformation is actually an active work of the Spirit. The language is, is, is passive. He says, be transformed. He doesn't say transform yourself. He says, be transformed. So the Spirit is doing the act of transforming in us. When we, when we give ourselves to the Lord, when we offer ourselves to the Lord in a daily sacrifice... We're giving the Spirit, we're giving ourselves to the Spirit to work in us. We must offer ourselves to Him to be transformed. Offering ourselves to be transformed involves the renewing of our mind. And as He says, not being conformed to the present age. I'm going to to switch the order a little bit in here because um, I'll talk about not conforming next, but I want to talk about renewing your mind. He's saying to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. How do we do that? Well, the one that sticks out to me the most 
is having your mind renewed by the word of God. Hear what Paul says to the elders in Ephesus in Acts 20, 32. He says, as he was leaving Ephesus, they were weeping together as they were going to not see Paul again. And Paul said to this, said this to them. He said, I leave you to the word of God's grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Think about Paul calling the word of God the sword of the spirit in the book of Ephesians in chapter 6 in order to protect against the attacks of the evil one. Then he tells the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That we would let the world word of Christ dwell in us richly. Because that is how God will transform our minds through his powerful word. Another way that we seek this transform that we see this transformation happen is through prayer. Jesus himself taught us to pray. The words that of the Our Father, the prayer we know very well, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. And third, we see the very thing we're doing right here, gathering together, hearing the word proclaimed, hearing the word read, singing psalms and spiritual songs to one another. The book of Hebrews says as well, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promises faithful, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, to do this in community. So I want to make clear, what we are doing today is worship. But it doesn't stop here. This is not the only place that we worship. But this is where we come to be equipped. This is where we come to gather together to encourage one another, to speak to one another, to pray, to hear the word. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And then Paul says, don't be conformed to what, what uh, you'll see this translated different, differently. Uh, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be conformed to this present age. I like this present age. Because what he's talking about in the present age is the very thing that Christ came to deliver us from. He says so in Galatians. The very beginning of Galatians, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to, will of our, to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And when we think about not being conformed, we, we come upon this, this error, we, we come upon the, the temptation to just get away from everything. I remember when I, was first, when I first became a Christian that, that the thing I wanted to do was get away from everything that was not Christian. I was a musician, I was, I was playing in, in, in a lot of bands, so I, I, I quit the bands in order that I could be with Christian musicians. I isolated myself to not have any non-Christian friends. I don't think that was good for me. 
It might have been good for a time so that I could learn more about the Lord and learn more about living the Christian life, but the problem was I retreated too much. And I had no contact with anybody who didn't know Christ. I wanted to run away to where it was safe. We see a lot of cultures that, that might do this and, and where, where they may just retreat to live in, in, a, in a special place where they're away from everything. But I don't think that's what our Lord means here. I don't think that's what we are called to do. R.C. Sproul, talking about what it means to not be conformed to this present age, says that doesn't mean that you drop out of the world. He says, this is my father's world. And this world is the arena of God's redemption. The tendency has always been to flee from the world and hide in the upper room. But God, the Holy Spirit, won't tolerate that. He sends his people into the world. Still quoting Sproul, Martin Luther said it this way, There's a normal pattern of Christian behavior. The person who's converted out of the world spends his first days as a Christian in a tendency to completely withdraw from the world. Just like Paul went to Arabia, for example, or, or we might have a desire to be so far removed from the stains and the pollution of this world that we become monastic, we become monks in our thinking, withdrawing, stepping out of the world altogether. But Martin Luther said also that a Christian doesn't reach maturity until he re-enters the world and embraces the world again. Not in its worldliness, though, this time, but in its, or in its ungodly patterns, but as the theater and the arena of God's redemption. When we go out of these walls, when we go out the doors today, we are entering into the theater of God's redemption, the arena of God's redemption, we're here encouraging one another, hearing the word being proclaimed. We're singing together. We're encouraged. But when we go out this afternoon, this week, the worship continues. The daily sacrifices continue. The daily struggles continue. The daily struggles with the world, with unbelievers who, who might be difficult to deal with when they hear about your faith. <laughs> The Christians who are difficult to deal with. It continues. The daily sacrifice continues. The worship continues. Because this is the world that God has called us into. And this is the worship that God has called us to. See, Jesus did indeed come right into the mess of the world. And he never retreated. He never taught his disciples to avoid the mess. But rather, he prayed in John 17 that they would not be taken out of the world. They would be in the world, but not of the world. Not submissive to it. Not submissive to its ways. Submissive to God, but in the mess of the world to proclaim the blessings of Christ. Jesus came that he might bring the gospel to bear on the world. And he sends us to do the same.
When Jesus came, he modeled that living sacrifice every day of his life. He modeled that living sacrifice by saying, not my will, Father, but thine. Did he struggle? Yes. Tempted in every way like his brothers. But constantly submitting himself to the word of the Father, to the will of the Father. Even as he, as as was said in the blessing, suffered bitterly in the Garden of Gethsemane because he knew what was about to come. The daily sacrifices would soon be over as he goes to the cross for the one-time sacrifice of his life. No more a living sacrifice, now a dying sacrifice, shedding righteous blood that could be poured out on all of us, unworthy, sinful, without hope, for the purpose that we may one day take on his righteousness and be called the living sacrifices and to go out and to worship this Christ boldly and openly in our world, in the arena of redemption. And brothers and sisters, I pray that we as a church would continue to encourage one another, that we would meet here and worship boldly here in this room every Sunday that we would gather together in prayer groups and then we would go out and encourage each other to boldly worship where we are and make those daily sacrifices, challenging one another, encouraging one another, and holding one another up because the struggle is very great. But God's love and God's power is greater. Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you call us to make these sacrifices, Lord, but thank you that you also give us the transforming power. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning because we need them. Help us to depend upon you. Help us to love you greater. Lord, help us to worship you everywhere we are and to be living sacrifices for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.